Huh. That's an interesting picture. What does it mean? Eat crow, right? And, and so I'm sorry for some of you PETA lovers. Um, it's an illustration that you'll never forget if you love animals. Um, we have a term called eating crow, right? What does that mean? Heard all kinds of things. So, someone speak out where I can hear you. Admitting you're wrong, be humbled. Yeah. Anyone ever had to eat crow? Yeah, it's something we do. And and today I want to use that as a starting point because really what we're going to see today is Jesus confronting the Pharisees on their pride and, and challenging them to eat crow, so to speak. Now, they don't actually turn. They don't actually change. But Jesus is confronting them and proving that they are wrong in their pride and challenging them to be humble. Some definitions of eating crow. Never thought you'd hear that on a Sunday morning. To admit that one is wrong, usually when doing so triggers great embarrassment or shame. To be forced to admit a humiliating mistake. That's about right, isn't it? I can remember eating crow as a a child and with my neighbors, and we would often talk about science and things, and I just was adamant and making a case that the sun was smaller than the earth. I was wrong. Had to admit that at one point, and I had all kinds of arguments for it. Sort of like our, our friendly flat earthers that are coming to, to prominence now. They're, they're going to have to eat crow. The earth isn't flat. And if there's any flat earthers here, um, talk to me later. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but there are things in life that we get so caught up into our way and our thinking and, and what we want that we, it's almost impossible for us to see another side. It's impossible for us to see our pride, our self-reliance, how much we love ourselves. And in Jesus, last week, he introduced the concept of the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God starts in, in the, the life of his people. It starts in his church now and ultimately culminates when he comes back and defeats sin and Satan and creates a new heaven and new earth. But now, what does it mean to live like a kingdom person? What does it mean to live like a citizen of the kingdom? And so he's going to keep pounding on this and pounding on this as he's on his way to the cross, which will institute the kingdom. If you remember last week, we said the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God in the hearts and lives of his people, culminating in a physical new heaven and earth where God reigns and rules as king. So if you've accepted Christ, if you've chosen to follow him, you are part of the kingdom of God now. But that means we're no longer citizens of this world, this broken, fallen world, but we're citizens of God's kingdom. And that implies a change in action, a change in responsibilities. And so today in the text, we're going we're gonna to just sit with a meal at the Pharisees. And they're going, Jesus is going to challenge them to eat crow. And we're going to sit and listen to Jesus' teaching as he really pounds on two different concepts, or two, I would argue, the same concept, that members of the kingdom of God are to show love and humility. We are to be characterized by love and humility in every part of our lives. That's essential to discipleship. It's essential to being part of um, God's kingdom. So in your notes, you see just the phrase, citizens of God's kingdoms live and act out love and humility. It's the kingdom of the humble. Now, that's something that that is not easy. That's something that goes against our natural self. It goes against our sin nature. It goes against what this world teaches. But that's why Jesus is presenting a totally different kind of kingdom, a radically different kind of kingdom. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to continue in Luke, and, and we're, we're moving through Luke. We'll get done, hopefully about the end of the year, but Luke chapter 14, and we're going to look at the first 24 verses, which all occur around a dinner table, and all occur um, in, in one setting. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback one under a chair right around you that you're welcome to take, and if you don't have one, take that with you as our gift to you so you have God's Word. But Luke chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 1 through 24. The first six verses, you see point number one in your notes, is true humility and godliness is shown in our love and care for others above our spiritual traditions. And you you could just cut it off. True humility and godliness is shown in our love and care for others. And that would be true in a general sense. But this particular story, Jesus is challenging them above your own spiritual traditions, above those things that make you look spiritual and feel spiritual in a way that you don't actually have to love and care for others because, hey, you've checked the box and you're good with God. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm after. I'm after a heart. And we talked last week a lot about heart and obedience that comes from the inside rather than just external. Our desire to love and help others should trump our desire to love self self, and look and feel spiritual. So we start at verse 1 there in the setting, one Sabbath, and that should be like red flag, red flag, red flag. Because we've seen now seven different times where there's a confrontation on the Sabbath. This is one of those issues that Jesus keeps pounding and pounding and pounding because it's an issue of the heart and they're not getting it. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, now this is the setup in the next verse. This is all part of what I, I would consider a setup by the Pharisees. Because really... Shouldn't the Pharisees have known by now not to invite Jesus to dinner? It doesn't go well every time. I can picture Jesus walking in and one of the Pharisees whispering to the host, why did you invite him? Really? Are you stupid? And this doesn't go well, and it's not going to. So they they invite Jesus in. They're watching him carefully. And this probably is setting up an attack and they want to find a way to condemn him and show that he is not following the law. In verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now dropsy is a term for edema that we would use today. It's the accumulation of fluids in the tissues of the body, causes swelling, lack of circulation, and eventually organ failure. And so this was a serious issue. But, but the nature of the wording here, and we don't know for sure. This is a little bit of conjecture. This is me, me just thinking it through. I actually think he was brought in as a plant, that, that he was there to set up Jesus because they've seen him do things on the Sabbath before. And the, the, the fact is, a leader of the Pharisees at an official meal would not have invited an unclean person with this disease. That is completely out of line with their culture. And so for him to be there, he had to be intentionally brought there. And that, that's some of my reasoning why I think this is a setup along with they were watching him carefully. And so they're there to trap Jesus, to find a way to condemn him. And so Jesus, in verse 3, he responds first. And it's interesting, it says he, Jesus responded. Another reason why I think this was a, a trap, because no one said anything at this point. But Jesus preemptively gets out in front of this. He, he initiates the conversation. He's going to make his point and disarm them before they can even say a word. He knows their thoughts. And so he's responding to the situation. And he asks in verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
Just a simple question, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, what if they say, yes, you can heal? Then they now, with all their peers and the fellow scribes and lawyers, appear lawless and they have lost credibility. They've lost face with everyone else. Now, if they say no, what's, what's the, the, the result? They look like jerks. They look like heartless people who have no compassion for the, the sick, no compassion for the needy. And so there is, there is a, a problem that they have here because in their law, it, well, at least what they've done with their law, all this extra law, they said that you couldn't heal unless life was threatened. So if they say yes, they're violating their written law. But it is interesting. What if Jesus is saying, what did Moses say? What did the actual law in the Old Testament, instead of your traditions and all these extra things you've built around it, what does that say? And then they would have had to say, well, well, yeah, it's, it's allowed because it was never condemned in the Mosaic law. And so he asks, is it lawful to heal? And, and they're caught in a catch 22. Do I, do we appear heartless and cruel or do we get in trouble with other Pharisees? And so, so their answer, if you read on in verse four, but they remain silent. They're just speechless. They, they, they don't know what to say. There's nothing they can say. They have learned something. Don't, don't engage Jesus in a, a battle of logic or of will. And so they say nothing. It goes on in verse 4. Then he, being Jesus, took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. So they don't say anything. Jesus heals him and sends him away. They can't say anything at this point. He asked. They refused to answer. And so then Jesus drives the point home in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. They start speechless. They end speechless. They've got nothing for this. Because Jesus now drives home the point to, to their hearts. And he says, okay, which of you having a son or an ox, a, a person you love or a thing that you love, and they are getting in trouble, they fall into a pit, which of you will not immediately, without delay, without hesitation, go and save them? And they knew that they would. They knew that they would do this for someone they loved. The problem is they didn't love the man with dropsy enough. He wasn't part of their family. He wasn't their animal. And Jesus just brilliantly drives home this point that the Sabbath and and the rituals and all those things, if they weren't careful, they get in the way of loving others and loving God. And that is what all the law hangs on. You see it as you walk out every Sunday. Love God, love others. There are no two greater commands than those, according to Jesus. And so he's pointing out, you don't love this man. You don't care for this man. That's your heart. That's why you're frustrated. And he he points out their hypocrisy in this. See, the desire to love and help others should trump our desire for how we want things in in a spiritual setting, how we want church to look, what we want the service to look like, what we think should happen in this way or that way. If those become issues above loving other people and above ministry, we have a problem, and it's a pride problem. It's a me problem, a self problem. And so Jesus here is going to confront their heart isn't right because it's about them not loving God, not following God. One commentator 
um, said this, and I'm just going to read what he said because he, he worded it so well. Luke is showing that God's commandments were not about external conformity, but about acting with love, justice, and mercy. What better way to honor the Sabbath than to do good and to heal? What the law requires is love in action, not appearances. So the Pharisees were asking the wrong question. They were asking several questions. Number one, what would make us look and feel good spiritually? Hey, if we have this set of checklist of commands and we follow it, we can say we are spiritual before God. Now, before we get too hard on them, we can do that. I'm a checklist person. And one of the things on my checklist might be quiet time, do my scripture typer, pray. And, and, And that's not bad. Checklists are good. But if that becomes more important than my heart for loving God and doing those things, that's a problem. We can come into church and we can expect church to be all about us. How is this going to feed me? Is worship going to feed me? Is, is Pastor Ron going to say enough funny things and enough good things to feed me this morning? And, and that's the wrong reason to come. Now, yes, we want you to grow. And yes, I pray that we come before the throne of God and worship. But if that's our only reason and we've eliminated love and mercy to other people, if we are so concerned about getting our particular seat that we pass someone crying in the lobby, that's self, not godliness. That's pride, not humility. We need to be aware of the heart of why we do things and be looking to have the heart of God. See, the Pharisees are asking what is permitted on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, this is what's intended on the Sabbath. This is a day set apart to love God and love others, to make it holy for God. And you've turned it into something about you. One author said, from Jesus' perspective, healing the man with edema is not simply permitted, but required on the Sabbath. And, And I don't want to create a new list of commands that we can follow and feel spiritual. But Jesus' point Every time when he comes to the Sabbath is what is required is that you show your love for God and the others, that you show mercy, that you show humility, not just an external adherence to a checklist and a set of commands. And so the first point here is true humility and godliness is shown in our love and care for others above our spiritual traditions, above how we think things should be, above what we want. Now, you, you heard Joshua talk in worship that we're, we're going to talk about humility. You heard me talk about eating crow, and this is all about humility. This first one, though, seems to be talking about love and caring for others and mercy for others. What I want us to think about today and just sort of to step back and see the bigger picture, what is the connection between love and humility? Think about this. Can you truly love someone selflessly if you don't have humility? No, you you can't. The two are closely tied together. We don't always think about that, but I would say pride is one of the biggest obstacles to loving other someone else as God would want us to love them, right? They're really two sides of the same coin. Humility is the inward heart, the inward spirit, attitude that we should have. Love is the outward action, how that expresses itself in, in real life. Now, now in our culture, I know love's like, oh, it's what I feel inside. But you've heard me say a lot of times, no, love is what we do. Love is acting selflessly for the good of another. That's love. I can say I love you to my wife all day, and if I never act on it, I don't love her. 
So love is in reality shown when we actually do something. Humility is the heart inside out of which we do it. Does that make sense? So humility, if, if we had to define some of these things, humility is not focusing on self but putting others first. It's just, it isn't just not regarding ourselves as superior but not regarding ourselves at all. Not thinking of ourselves. Pride is the love of self, the priority of self. It's putting ourselves first. And those are all opposites of love. Think about this. We put first what we love most. And we love most what we put first. And so if we want to... if we want to think of the connection, if I'm putting myself first, that's pride, then that's what I love most and I can't love others. If, I, if I'm dealing with pride and struggling with pride, then that's also a love issue because now I'm loving self most. So love and humility today are the two characteristics Jesus is going to pound home because they are connected. You can't separate them. One requires the other. So now they're still sitting at the table. It's been good dinner conversation so far. Had a little bit of crow and um, goes on. People are still sitting there, which I respect. And, and in verse 7, we see the next point. Humility does not seek its own honor, recognition, or status. Humility does not seek its own honor, recognition, or status. Trust that God provides these things when and if it is right. And so he begins to address honor, recognition, and status because he was watching as people came in. And so in verse 7, we get to this story. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. And so the, the, the setting here is he was watching people come in. And we talked about this earlier in Luke, and I think I have a picture of this, of a, of a setting so you have a, a U-shaped table here. This is a smaller setting. At a big big banquet like this, there would be multiple tables, but in a U-shape. And the guest of honor would sit at the center of the end of the U. Does that make sense? So the guest of honor would be the guy in the middle or, or the host, the most important person. And then on his left and right would be the next two most important people. There was a whole social system for this. You know, I, I don't see this a lot when we go out for potlucks. It's more like, where's an empty table? And is it close to the food? That, that's sort of how we decide where to sit. But for them, it would all be about where you sat in relation to the most important person there. Because the closer you were to them, the more honor and prestige you'd gain for yourself. The more invites you'd get. That's the A-list table. And then you have the B-list people. And then you have the C and D-list down at the end. Right? And so what Jesus observed is when the doors open and everyone comes and people are getting there early, they're scrambling for the best seats. Because, hey, if I can get close to the front, I look better. People will like me more. People will appreciate me more. And so Jesus just watched this. And he watches them take this social setting and just scramble and fight for honor and fight to have the best place, fight for themselves to be more important, to get more invites, to feel successful in life. And so in verse 8, he he responds. And he says, okay, this is what I've seen. And he says in verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, and he begins to talk about feasts, he's at a table, it's appropriate, but wedding feast, they would have immediately thought, we're going to see it in the next story, the feast of the Lamb that the Messiah will bring. 
So they're thinking God's kingdom when it actually comes. How do you get in the kingdom of God? This is still part of that discussion. And Jesus said, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying if you scramble in and take the front table, you take the place of honor, you assume that that you deserve that, maybe, or you're just trying to get that, you're going to be humbled. Because what if someone else more important than you was also invited? That host, and the host of the time, would not have been ashamed to do this. In fact, they would have been expected to do this. So if we think of our, our sensitivities of today, no, no. The host would come and say, you're in the wrong seat. Why don't you move? Because this person's more important than you. Now, keep in mind, everyone's sitting and reclining. They'd be be reclining back like this. They're all sitting and reclining, and they're watching this happen. And now all the other seats are taken, so the only seat left is down at the Z table. (laughs) What? (laughs) The Z table, sorry. (laughs) Where the Zunigas are sitting down. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) This would be just mortifying because now in front of everyone, you stand up and you take the walk of shame to the last table. And Jesus is saying, don't do this. When you assume too much of yourself, when you try to strive for that, this is what happens. It would be like at a wedding, all the guests are seated and you came in and you know that the front two rows are reserved for family and most important people. So you come and sit like three places down in the front row. But you're not mom, dad of the bride. And this bride side? Yeah, okay, bride side. <laughs> and as the mom and dad start coming down, one of the ushers comes and says, you know what? You're not family. And, and you don't belong here. At that point, the only seat left is up in the balcony. Sorry, guys, in the balcony. Um, and you have to get up in front of everyone and take that walk. And so Jesus is pointing out what happens when we exalt ourselves. What happens when we think too highly and we chase after um, prestige and we chase after honor and we take what we deserve because it's our right. In fact, even in the 5th century, a, a few hundred years later, in notes about the law, it reads, stay two or three seats below your place and sit until they say to you, go farther up. Do not begin by going up, because then they may say to you, go down. It's better that they should say to you, go up, go up, than that they should say to you, go down, go down. And so Jesus is making a great point here. Verse 10, he goes on, says the same thing. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And and then the point, Jesus' whole point, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we see it's just better to be humble than to be humiliated. And those are two different things. It's better to be humble than humiliated. The former frequently require, is a result from the lack of the latter. When you think of humiliation and humility. So Jesus is saying the way to the top is through servanthood. It's through the bottom. And he says, start at the lowest spot. 
when your host comes to you and says, actually, you need to move up. You're more important than this. Now, he is the one giving you the prestige you deserve. He is the one giving you the honor that you deserve. What a turnaround. What a turnaround here. And, and, and Jesus is giving them this foundational principle to humility. Try to exalt yourself and you will be humbled. Be humble and you will be exalted to where you should be. Now what we know is God is the judge. God is the host. And He doesn't make mistakes. And so He will put us with the prestige and and position we deserve, that we should have in His timing. Our goal is humility and to let Him take care of the rest. I don't have to fight for recognition. I don't have to fight for authority. I don't have to fight for power. And, and, and I don't care where that is. That might be in the home where I'm always fighting for the best thing and, and, and getting the, the place of honor. Now, we don't, yeah, we don't really care where we sit at home, but maybe it's who gets the remote control or when the food's set out, who gets the biggest piece. And so often to try to help our kids understand this, if someone rushes in and takes the biggest piece or the best piece, we'll say, thank you for serving your brother or sister. And then there's tears and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And, and, um, but we're trying to fight this internal sense of me, 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 me first. I'm going to take and scramble for the best seat or the best thing or the best position. It is so easy to get into the setting at work especially if you're just in a very competitive environment where if I don't put someone else down, if I don't perform this way, if I don't do this, I don't get the recognition and the raise that I deserve. And I am not opposed to being excellent at your job. You've heard me talk in work and worship. Christians should be the best at their jobs. That's part of our testimony. But we don't have to worry about recognition with that. We don't have to worry and self-promote and say, hey, look at me. Do our best. Do our job. Step through the doors God opens for us and let Him do the work. You know, in in church we can do this and we can have a spiritual hierarchy. And who knows the pastor the best or who does this the most or who's here the most? No. No. We humble ourselves and let God exalt us because when we exalt ourselves, it's always disaster always disaster. Can I stand not getting the credit for something I've done or sharing the credit at work or at church? Can I stand not having my opinion heard? Because it should be. It's the best one out there. Can I stand not having the influence I think I deserve? Can I stand not going through the potluck line first? And so I pay the pastor to have my table released first. <laughs> joke, that joke, don't. Never happens here, Don. Uh, <laughs> I want my way is really what this is about. And I want people to appreciate me for wanting my way. See, more than all those things, it's a trap of striving for recognition and esteem from others. And if the basis of who I am and how I serve and how I feel about my love for others and God, if that basis is whether I feel esteemed by someone else and recognized from someone else, that is a horrible trap to be in because that will always let us down. 
that always leads to, okay, now I have to self-promote. I have to self-glorify. You know, this is where some, sometimes, and, and recognition is a good thing. And understand the balance here. Recognition is awesome. But if I'm only doing ministry, for instance, at church because I'm recognized, or if I get frustrated because someone hasn't thanked me or appreciated me enough, I now have turned it to be about me and my, my need for recognition than about selflessly serving God. Now, again, leaders that are here, recognize and appreciate the people you work with. That's, I'm not saying that we don't do that. But what I'm saying is we don't need that. It's a good thing, but it's not a required thing. So humility doesn't strive for and seek recognition. We'll end up where God wants us to be because he is righteous and just. Don't worry about it. Trust that God can do that. It's hard. It's hard. Loving self is the last man to die on the battlefield of godliness. Let me repeat that. Loving self is the last man to die on the battlefield of Christ-likeness. But we want God to take that out of our hearts. Today, we sang, O Spirit, come make us humble. Do you know what you sang? Is that really our prayer? God, do what it takes to make me humble? That's serious stuff. I love a story from, from Dr. Ironside, Christian preacher. One day he felt he was not as humble as he thought he should be. So, so he, to show his concern, he went to an elder friend, asked what he should do about it. And his friend said, make a sandwich board with the plan of salvation in scripture and wear it. Then walk through the business and shopping area of downtown Chicago for a whole day. He said, humble himself and be about what you should be about. Be about the kingdom of God. Ironside followed his friend's advice. Upon completion of this humiliating experience, he returned to his apartment. As he took off his sandwich board, he caught himself thinking, there's not another person in Chicago that would be willing to do what I just did. Now, he's the one telling the story. (laughs) So I'm not bagging on him because his illustration is it's really hard to overcome this. Even when we think we're overcoming it, thoughts can come in of me, 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 look at me, look what I did, look what I accomplished. In reality, we're all sinners, but his mercy is more. So many of the songs, great choices today, just fit this text. Next, he moves from talking to the guest to talking to the host. And point number three, humility means moving beyond our circles and ignoring race, rank, or class when we choose whom to associate with. Humility means moving beyond our circles and ignoring race, rank, or class when we choose whom to associate with. So verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him. So he turns, goes to the host, and everyone's like, shh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be good. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And you see, he starts with, okay, what what kind of people are you inviting? Are you inviting the people you like, the people in your circles, the people that you know will invite you back, the people that you know you'll gain something by being around? He says, no, no, no. And and he's not saying never invite them. Jesus, 
went to, to friend's house, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he went to family. But he's saying, don't only invite them, expand, expand our mindset of who we're willing to associate with. And he says, no, no, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. These would have been the outcasts, sort of the, the, the people shunned by society, the people you didn't associate with. Whether that be class, and they would have been a lower class, sometimes race would get in the way, and he's going to deal with that with Gentiles coming up. But definitely rank and status would have been part of this. And he's saying, don't be self-serving in who you chose, choose to associate with. See, our invite lists to things we plan often shows our level of pride. That's a little bit of an ouch. Because I, I like to invite people I like. But, but Jesus is saying, let's get beyond this because why do we invite them? Because we like them? Because we expect something in return? No, humility means moving beyond our circles, ignoring those things, and branching out. It would have been very uncommon for them to eat with someone of a lower class like this. He's saying, do it anyway. This is how you love your neighbor as yourself. This is how you show God's love. And so it's a challenge not to be self-serving. And he goes on in in point number four, which is out of the same story. So these two are sort of paired together. Maybe you'd call them 3A and 3B. Humility and love gives to those that can't give anything in return. Humility and love gives to those who can't give anything in return. And Jesus is setting this up. He's like, if you only invite people that give you something back, that's self-centeredness. But if you really want selfless hospitality and selflessness, invite people that you know will never give you any response that, or, or, or never give you any credit or social status or won't invite you back. That's a test of pride versus humility. Now, now I know that it's hard sometimes to keep reaching out to people that aren't responding and reciprocating. The problem is that's godly. And to, to stop that, to let that bother us, is an issue of pride and self. And so Jesus here is pointing it out, no, go to those that can't help, that can't return. But he says, don't worry, you get a return. It's just not from them. It's from God the Father in the kingdom of heaven. And that's better. And so he's challenging their heart the heart of a Pharisee that is really just about self. And, and again, the heart of all of us. I think we all struggle with things like this. We gravitate to our circles of people we know, of people we like, of people we're comfortable with. You know, it was, it was interesting. Um, I sat and watched you guys come in this morning. Or I, I stood and watched you guys come in this morning just to see if there was, you know, fighting for the best seats, which would be, no, I don't know where. <laughs> Um, see how we're interacting. And it was just a joy because there wasn't fighting for seats. There wasn't going up to someone and saying, hey, you're in my seat, which is just horrendous and and an issue of pride. (laughs) Um, No, there was just a, a love and a reaching out and coming in and people mingling with other people and caring about each other and, and just kudos. Thank you. Thank you for being different from this gathering. Humility and love gives to those who can't give anything in return. Serve and love others without worrying about yourself, knowing your reward is from God. Seek to help those in need. That's part of this point. Because he he mentions these categories of people that have deep needs. Seek compassion. See, we, we see compassion here. And for compassion to happen, humility is a must. 
one of the, the barriers to compassion is pride. Well, they deserve where they're at. Well, my life is busy and I have other things to do. Those are all enemies of compassion. And, and the battlefield is that of pride versus humility. Self or selflessness? Point number five, and we get to the last story. Kingdom living humility puts a priority on God's work in kingdom above our own lives. Kingdom work or kingdom humility puts a priority on God's work in kingdom above our own lives. You've heard me talk on this before. We talked on this on Mother's Day. Next week for Father's Day, we're going to talk on this because that's the next section. Over and over, Jesus says, who do you love most? Who do you love most? Is it, is it you? Is it yourself in this case? Is it your family? Is it your job? Who do you love most? Or do you love me most to where you're willing to make me the first priority? And he brings it up again. And he wants to make sure we love God more than self. And so 15, verse 15. And again, we're still at the table, by the way. Still having great dinner conversation. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is out of left field. And, and, and some people think, well, he just talked about your reward will be in heaven. And, and so some, one of the guests, and, and probably one of the guests is trying to lighten the mood, ease the tension a little bit. And, and the, the guest says, we'll, we'll all be there. You're right. Reward in heaven. Blessed is he who's going to be there. And the assumption is, hey, we're Jews. All of us will be there. We're good. We, we've checked the external markers. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus never passes up an opportunity. It's awesome. And he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And, and let me just, again, set this up. So much of culture we have to understand. For, for them, again, to, set, to do a big banquet was a lot of prep, Right? You didn't just go buy Kentucky Fried Chicken in big tubs and serve it and you got a banquet. Okay, maybe you want to serve better food. Um, you, you actually had to go kill the cow and butcher the cow and carve it up and cook it and cook all of the, the fixings. This could be a day or a multi-day process to throw a big banquet, right? And so their culture, and, and we see this actually in other writings and throughout, their culture was you always gave two invitations, the first one was sort of the one that people would RSVP to. And so the servants would go out and say, hey, there's going to be a banquet on this day. Would you like to come? People would accept or decline at that point so the host knew what preparations to make because it was such a big ordeal. But because of the timing, you couldn't say like 5 o'clock. Number one, they weren't really a time-sensitive culture, but as well as these kinds of preparations could vary. So when you got close to being ready, you then sent your servant back to all the people that, it, that had accepted the RSVP and said, now's the time. The barbecue's almost done. The cow's cooking. It smells good. Let's eat. What we're going to see here is that second invitation. What we're seeing is people that have all said they're coming and told the host they're coming. And now when it comes to the day of and they're told, okay, the food's ready, they respond as we'll see in this text. And he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. 
I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, now there's all kinds of questions with this. Why would they buy a field without ever seeing it? It's the biggest one. This banquet is probably an evening banquet. They didn't have street lights or flashlights. And so most commentators, and I would agree with them, think this is just a false excuse. It's just an excuse. I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. Second one's just like it. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I've bought 10 ox. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, most families on their farm maybe would have one yoke of oxen, maybe two. To buy five yoke of oxen, this would have been a business transaction. This would have been a wealthy person. You, the nature of how you buy the, these animals, you don't buy them untested. You want oxen that can t- pull a plow, for instance. And, and so this is, again, just a lame excuse. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And that might mean, you know, they're in the first seven days of the marriage, but then in small towns, you wouldn't plan a big banquet conflicting with a a marriage. Probably this means sometime in the first year of marriage. And the guy's saying, I need to spend time with my wife. And he doesn't even say, please excuse me, right? He says, I can't come. Sorry. And so we have these excuses that are probably faults, that are probably problems, but one after another, they tell the host we can't come. Now, now understand the picture. The host here is God the Father, and the banquet is the, the, the feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we go to heaven, when we go to, to be with Christ. And he's saying, I've invited you all to salvation. I've invited you all to my kingdom. And one by one, they're saying, nope, not for us. Not for us. Now, you, you could look at these excuses, and if you had to narrow them down, you, you really have excuses of property, work, and family, right? Property by land, work, or business, the oxen, family, I just got married. And when those things become more important than the kingdom, there are problems. And, and each of these, even if they're valid excuses, they're still saying these things are more important than the banquet, than, than, than being with God. And they put the business of everyday life ahead of the business of the kingdom of God. And the thing is, the gospel is audacious. It, it demands our whole self. It demands a love for God that supersedes everything else. Because what we love most is our idol. And so really, we can only love God most. These things aren't bad, but they aren't the, the highest priority. They had risen in importance over what God wanted. And the phrase I put in your notes, when good things keep us from the best things, they become bad things. Get it? When good things keep us from the best things, they become bad things. I put in there a quote from John Piper, which I just loved. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the deadliest appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable 
and almost incurable. Wow. Read that every day this week along with your Bible reading. Don't replace your Bible reading with it. But take a look at that this week and be convicted. I'm convicted by that. Who do we love most? What do we love most? See, Satan will often tempt us with the good to keep us from the best. Now, this isn't saying that X-rated videos and those other things are okay. Don't go there. (laughs) But that's not where most of us fall. Maybe maybe some do, and that's a problem, and, and that needs repentance and God to heal. But so many times, Satan captures us by the ordinary things of life that become idols. The passage goes on. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Ironically, the same four things he told the the host back in verse 13, right? Same four classes of people to invite. He's saying, I'm inviting them. And and these are people that that would have been outcasts in in Israel, that would have been been outcasts and, and on the fringe. And the servant came back in 22 and the servant said, Sir, what has been commanded has been done. There's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And he's saying, Go beyond the town. Go to the streets, the country lanes, some translations say, country roads. And this, this is an image of going beyond Israel and that Gentiles are welcome in. Everyone is welcome. Persuade them to come in. Compel them to come in. And we see the heart of God there. He will take anyone who humbles himself and is willing to say, I'm a sinner. I need God. I need Christ's sacrifice for my sins because I can't be spiritual on my own. I can't forgive my own sins. I can never be good enough even though I try. And so, Lord, I need you. I need your sacrifice on the cross. I live for you. Anyone that does that is invited to the banquet which will be the most incredible thing ever to be in the the final kingdom of God. But verse 24 ends. And Jesus says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. That's the mic drop moment. That's the end of the dinner conversation. Because he just told them, some of you aren't going to make it in. It's a narrow door, and repentance and humility are how you go through it. The master, the one that invites us into his kingdom, has an offer available for all. It doesn't matter how sick we are, how broken we are, how much sin we've dealt with. He can take care of all that. He just says, humble yourself. Come in. And if we don't, and if we don't turn to him, we won't be part of that kingdom. He says, my banquet, just sort of a fun little theological fact. He's reaffirming that he's the Messiah. But he invites all and only those that respond will be there. I pray that we humble ourselves and respond. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, understand we can't ever be good enough to pay for our own sins. But he died on the cross and took that penalty and took that payment if we just turn to him. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. Kingdom of God. Kingdom citizens act out of love and humility. Simple concepts, but hopefully this this dinner conversation, eating crow with the Pharisees, 
helps us remember what that's Lord, thank you for inviting us to your table, to the table of the wedding of the Lamb, that we will be in eternity with you. Lord, help us to come with humble hearts. Lord, humbled hearts that then you will exalt with our place at that table. Lord, help us to realize that none of us deserve to be there. We all fall in one of those categories. We all have have received your mercy that covers everything. So how could we be proud? How could we think of ourselves more than others? How could we exclude anyone? Lord, I pray that we would all come to the table and be in sweet fellowship with you and with each other. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble because that's what it means to be a citizen of the King. In Jesus' name.